story you're about to hear is true. Only the facts have been changed to protect the innocent. Who did this? The question riddled with heartbreak and at the same time, blood-curdling, justice-demanding rage. Who did this? A fury of white-hot terror resounded off the walls and down the hallway, echoing unrestrained declaration of the most heinous crime such as the peaceful dwelling had ever known before. Truth be told, crime had been committed. Wrong had been done. The evidence was clear. It was everywhere. Bits and pieces uh, were hastily hacked off and laid strewn about the scene. It looked, if you looked closely, you would see crimson stains speckled across the floor. And then, of course, the most gruesome discovery of all, the victim itself, lying there in the corner beside the blade. Who did this? A cry of desperation of devastation, like the sound of one whose world had come to a sudden and violent end. The sound that, that leaves no doubt that nothing will ever be the same again. But personally, I didn't see what the big deal was. If someone thoughtlessly cut into a piece of leftover cherry pie... I didn't think that was so much of a big deal. Is that such a crime? Since 1984, the SETI Institute has been searching for the evidence of intelligent life out there somewhere, other planets. And we've actually been sending messages out into the great beyond, hoping that somebody is listening, that somebody will someday re respond. Well, I'm afraid that if someone with pointy ears is out there and they are listening to this planet, the sound that they're going to hear is not so much the sound of boys and girls holding hands and singing It's a Small World After All or Kumbaya. What they're going to hear is the heartbreaking cries for justice. Now, I don't know if a day goes by in my life without a search attempt to figure out who's to blame for this, who's the guilty party, who is at fault, who did this. seems the human race is on a never-ending quest to determine who is responsible for the endless injustices that take place each and every day, not the least of which is the question that lies hanging above some of our freeway overpasses. Who shot Aiden? We're outraged by some of the things that we see happen in our world, and I think we should be. Absolutely. But what do you do when you find out that the one responsible is none other than yourself. What do you do when you find out that the one to blame is you?
What do you do after you scoured the crime scene? After you peered into the microscope? You ran the DNA test. You examined all the evidence and you find you are the guilty party. Do you double down and insist on your innocence? Do you do what my high school chemistry teacher told us? The four rules of conflict resolution. Play dumb. Act innocent. Deny everything and implicate others. I liked that last one. Do you revert to some sort of self-preservation mode and just do whatever it takes to silence those who have evidence against you? We're in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is still on the temple grounds. He's still speaking to those religious leaders. And if you remember from last week, they had asked him a question. By whose authority do you do these things? And then he asked them a question about John the Baptist. They said, we don't know. He said, neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. But now he tells a story. It's story time, ladies and gentlemen. And he tells a story about a landowner and the disturbing events that began taking place. Look with me at Mark chapter 12. We're not going to stand and read this morning because, after all, this is a story. And we're going to let the story unfold as we go. So verse 1 says this. And he began speaking to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, you know that a parable, if you remember, it's a short story that illustrates a greater truth. In this case, Jesus tells a parable to open the eyes of his listeners to a certain reality that they were not yet aware of. He says there was a certain man certain man planted a, vine a vineyard. A landowner decides to put his property to work for him. So he has the ground tilled. He has the boulders taken out of it. And the boulders are probably set up around to form the walls around this field. And he sets up a structure, a tower, probably for surveillance. He's probably setting up other structures as well for the laborers, for the storage of equipment, for the processing of the product. He creates a pit for pressing wine and, of course, plants the vineyard. He's done everything necessary for thriving, for prospering, for, for a, a wonderful business venture to thrive. Lastly, he decides he's far too busy to handle the operation himself, so he leases the vineyard out to tenants so that they could run it for him, and then at certain intervals, he would come and collect a percentage of the profits. Makes sense. Seems reasonable. This was an arrangement that everyone would have been familiar with in that economy. If you were not a tenant farmer yourself, you probably had a relative who was, or you, you knew somebody who was. Jesus goes on. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Okay, there's nothing really of particular note here. This would have been normal. This well-to-do entrepreneur, he didn't bother making the trip himself. He's far too busy for that, so he sends out one of his people to go do the collecting. Then we read in verse 3. And they took him 
and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Okay, here's where everyone's ears begin to stand up. A crime has been committed. If you're old enough to remember, this is the way every single episode of Columbo starts, or Dragnet. It's every, this is the way it starts. Most crime shows or murder mysteries start with someone doing something that shouldn't be done. It wasn't enough for the tenant farmers to work the land and, and, and prosper from it, to reap the rewards from it. They wanted more. We can get more. They didn't want just a share of the earnings. They wanted it all. These greedy ingrates weren't going to give a red cent to the owner. And this is where, in any other story, a neighbor right, is seen peering over the wall. That nosy neighbor, right? The neighbor is seen peering over the wall. Or a little girl, she's passing by and she overhears what you should never hear, the shrill cries of the servant being beaten. Or this is where the bloodied and bruised servant comes falling into the entryway of the landowner, leading him to immediately call the police. But that doesn't happen. Jesus says, when the landowner realized that the first servant was unsuccessful, what did he do? He sends another one. If at first you don't succeed, hmm. Verse 4 reads, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. That word that Jesus uses for striking on the head here, it's not just a little love tap. Hey, buddy, uh, get, the, get the picture, get the signal. All right, scram. No, it wasn't that. This is the equivalent to a head bashing. This guy was brutalized, and he was humiliated. You've heard the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Certainly the landowner has learned his lesson. But no, verse 5, and he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And the audience goes, all right, you got to be kidding me, right? You're putting me on. This would never happen. Who is this guy? How could he be so stupid? Why doesn't he call the authorities? Why doesn't he... Hire some hitmen, or at least a private investigator, or at the very least, take a hint and stop sending your people over there. Clearly, the situation is out of control. But wait, there's more. The final straw is found in verse 6, where this seemingly clueless landowner decides to send a member of his own family. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. 
Now, it's possible that these tenants had this kind of cultural, traditional law thing in their mind that if a piece of property is unattended, it's abandoned by its owner for three years, then whoever's working that land, they get the property. And maybe they were thinking that if we can just get rid of the evidence here that this owner has sent anyone to come check on us, then it's going to be ours, free and clear. We're sitting pretty. What happens? At this point, no one is surprised what happens. The sun is coming. Oh, we all know what to expect, don't we? Verse 8 says, They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They seized him and murdered him and didn't even go bother to give him the dignity to bury him. No, they toss him out of the field for the animals, for the birds to take care of him, for the sun to just uh, rot his body out there. Two things, I think, would have been burning in the minds of everyone who heard this story. One, these guys are some of the most pathetic the most wretched, the most despicable pieces of human trash on the planet. I think that would have been in their minds. Secondly, this landowner, he's like no one who has ever lived. Who sends his own son after so many of his servants have been mocked and beaten and killed? So when Jesus asked, what will the owner do? There would have been little debate what the owner would do if he had any gray matter floating around inside of his skull, any red liquid pulsating through his veins. He's going to bring these guys to justice. What will the owner do, Jesus asked. Matthew records the response of the people. They say this. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus affirms their answer in Mark. In our passage, that's what we have is Jesus' affirmation. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus answers, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Sweet justice. It's, it's about time that landowner did something, right? Did something that made sense here. No one would have argued. These guys got what they deserved. Close curtain. Brush the popcorn off of your lap. Grab your coat and exit the theater. But wait a second. Now that I think about this, who's Jesus talking about here? It didn't take more than a few seconds, I imagine, for the religious leaders to figure out that Jesus was talking about them. In an instant, they go from outrage, outrage about these tenants. Surely he'll destroy them, get rid of them. And then all of a sudden they're saying, no, 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 you can't be serious, Jesus. You can't be talking about us. How do I know that that's what they were thinking? Because that's what Mark writes. When they heard this, they said, surely not. They hadn't realized it at first, but Jesus had led them to declare a guilty verdict on themselves. 
how? How did Jesus do that? Jesus changes the illustration in verse 10. He changes it from an uh, agricultural illustration to an architectural one. He says this, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the part of the movie where the characters find themselves in the moment of truth. Whoa. Time stands still. The flashbacks begin running, racing through their heads, and piece after piece of the puzzle begins to form, and all of a sudden the picture's coming into clear focus. Everything makes sense. Of course the landowner was strange. Of course he was strange. Because the landowner wasn't just any average guy. The landowner is God. We got that. He's the one who planted the vineyard. He's the one who brought everything into being and set people in place to care for it. More specifically, he's the one who called Israel out of darkness. He's the one who cultivated his people, who set it apart to produce good things. Good things. He's the one who entrusted the Jewish religious leaders who who were to care for it, to invest in it, that it might produce people who, who know him, who love him, who trust him, who worship him. This isn't the first time Israel has been referred to as a vineyard. See if this sounds familiar. Isaiah chapter 5, similar picture. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. After Jesus was finished with his parable, the religious leaders, they realized that Jesus was implying that God was the one who sent his servants out, his prophets out, time and time and time again to call Israel back to himself. But they were one after the other, tortured, mocked, put to death, 
Did you know that Jewish tradition holds that the prophet Isaiah, that we just read, he was sawn in half with a wooden sword under the reign of King Manasseh, God's prophet. The prophet Jeremiah was arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. The words of Ezekiel, rejected. Amos had to flee for his life under threat of Amaziah, the ninth king of Judah. Zechariah, another one rejected. Micaiah, struck on the cheek by King Zedekiah. It's no secret the way Israel had treated God's prophets, his people. They had a dark past of rejecting and persecuting and murdering the messengers that God had sent to them. The part of Jesus' story, though, that had not yet taken place was the murder of God's beloved son. And we know the reason for that. That's because Jesus was that son. And here he makes it known to the religious leaders and everyone else who's listening that he knows what is about to go down. He quotes Isaiah saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The most important part of the building that God was constructing here out of his people was Jesus himself. He was the pivotal piece, the essential element, the foundation upon which everything else would rest. Without him, it was impossible for people to have their sins forgiven, for them to be made right with their creator. Jesus was the cornerstone. But when the religious leaders looked at him, they saw a stone that wasn't worth putting on the cart. There's no value to this stone whatsoever. A worthless rock that should be pushed aside, tumbled down a hill, gotten rid of. Get out of the way so that we can continue building up our empire unto ourselves. God sent person after person after person. Wow, did God not know what he was doing? Was he just this ignorant landowner, too, too dumb to, th to think? Maybe wishful thinking, maybe they'll listen to this one, maybe they'll listen to that one. Was he just clueless? No way. No way. How do I know that? Because Jesus says it right here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It was all part of the plan, you see. This is how the Lamb of God would suffer and die for the sins of the world. Okay, so who were the evil tenants in the parable? We already mentioned the religious leaders. Yeah, they were standing right there, the same people that Jesus spoke about back in Matthew uh, 23, 29. It's an amazing passage. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they all said, if we had lived back then, when our fathers had the prophets come to, there's no way we wouldn't have thrown in with them. We would have stood up. We would have said, wait, no, these are righteous men from God. No way would we throw in with them. But Jesus made it clear that they would follow right in their father's footsteps. And they would do it in the worst possible way, murdering the Son of God himself. And then all of the courageous women and men who would come after him proclaiming the truth about him. They'd be hunted down. What do you do after you've scoured the crime scene? You've examined all of the evidence. You've looked in the microscope. You've, you've, you've seen the DNA results, and you find you are the guilty party. That's where the religious leaders were. Right there, moment of truth. Ugly truth had been found out. How would they respond? Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They were right. So they left him and went away. Their course was set. It was set. They could have come clean. They could have fallen on their faces, confessed their wicked ways, experienced the forgiveness of the Savior. But the exposure of their guilt, it led them further and further down the path that would end in their eternal punishment. What would you have done? What would I have done? You know, it wasn't just the religious leaders that were responsible for sending Jesus to the cross. Even the bystanders who were there, they were listening. They were seeing the indictment of the religious leaders. Even they, a day or two later, would have been offering up these bloodthirsty cries, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate washed his hands of the whole ordeal, they would shout the haunting words, his blood shall be on us. And they don't stop there. They say, and on our children. Wow. Many days later, at Pentecost, Peter would get up and preach his first sermon. And he would say these words, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And we go, ah, okay. Picture's becoming a little clearer here, religious leaders. All the people present there, guilty, guilty, guilty. But you know, before we 
make our decisions and extend our fingers. We kind of come to grips with the fact of 1 Timothy 1.15, which says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All of them. And what he does on the cross is not just for those people. It's for all of us. According to God's good plan. And we search and we try desperately to find fault. And what we realize is that we are the ones responsible because we are the ones that Jesus came to save by offering up his life on the cross. <laughs> Wait, you're saying that I'm just as guilty as one of those tenants? There would have been no reason for Jesus to go to the cross were it not for my guilt, not for your guilt. Isaiah, again, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Go ahead and substitute the word my. Upon him was the chastisement that brought me peace. And with his wounds, I am healed. The question is, what do you do when you come face to face with that reality? There was a story that was told many, many years before Jesus told this story. It, too, was given by a man of God. And he stood before a king. And he spoke of a wealthy, wealthy man who stole away a poor farmer's family pet. Actually, more than a pet. It was like a daughter to him, it says. The wealthy man took this little lamb, this little sheep, ripped it from the fingers of the family, butchered it, served it up to his guests. And the king listened to the story, of course, was outraged. What kind of a person would do such a despicable thing? In fact, in his anger, he actually said, this man deserves to die. And that's when the prophet Nathan said to King David, you are the man. Just like the re religious leaders, here was a man who came face to face with the reality that the horrible, despicable wretch in the story was none other than himself. He stood there, condemned, deserving of the harshest punishment that the law allows. And yet there was a difference in the way he responded and the the difference in the way he responded made all the difference. And it makes all the difference for every one of us who have had the blinders taken off to reveal the reality of our guilt. The Bible says all have sinned. Wow, that is a heavy reality. That means us. 
Not only have we sinned, not only has every single one of us rejected God, we're all deserving of that harshest punishment in all of existence, death, an eternity of anguishing separation from all that is good from God himself. Unlike the religious leaders, King David cried out, I have sinned against the Lord. And as simple as that, his guilt was washed away. Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And the Bible promises the exact same thing for all of us. And maybe there are some in this room, maybe there are some listening or watching this online who are just now coming to grips with the reality that maybe I'm not perfect, as perfect as I think I am, or as perfect as people know me to be. Maybe I'm guilty. Maybe I fall right in with this all group that the Bible talks about here. How do you respond? The Bible promises the same thing for David is true for you and I. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, that all word again. This time it's so, so good. Well, what about that thing I did? That was something I can't even tell people about because they would lock me up or not want to have anything to do with me. I'd lose family relationships. I'd lose my children. I'd lose my spouse. All. Have you confessed your sin? Have you come to grips with the reality that you're a sinner in need of God's forgiveness? Have you cried out to him for that forgiveness? Have you had him take the guilt, that weighty guilt, up off of your shoulders? Has he washed you clean and given you a hope and a future? That's why Jesus came. And that's what he's calling you to do. Would you do it? And as far as the rest of us are concerned, my friends, you and I are fault finders. That's what we do each and every day. We have countless reasons to seek and destroy the ones who are guilty of hurting us, of offending us, of abusing us, lying to us, taking advantage of us. But before we extend our index fingers, and raise our voices. Let's not forget how much fault Jesus came to forgive. It's not our job to look down on and punish the guilty tenants. That's God's job. It is our job to show them where they might come and have the blood washed from their hands 
and their souls draped in robes of white. We love you, Lord. We thank you. You are good, and that is the understatement of, the, <laughs> of all time. Lord, may you be honored, blessed, filled with joy as our hearts worship you now. We pray in Christ's name.